Lots and lots of interesting stuff today. We're in a series called I Am Jesus, going through the life of Jesus to know who he really is and what he really stood for, what his life was really about. And today we're going to see three different responses from three different groups of people to the arrival of Jesus, even as an infant on the earth. And as, it, as is often the case in Scripture, we're going to find ourselves in the response of one of those three people. And the question will be, which one will you and I be? But this is a big message about the historical context of what's going on at the time. You have to understand this. This isn't information we're sharing just so you can impress your friends at parties and talk all the way through the next Christmas pageant that you go to with historical details. This is a critically important set of information to help you understand what's going on. In the, in the decades leading up to the arrival of Jesus on the earth, the incarnation of Christ, Israel essentially found itself as a buffer state between two warring empires. You had the empire of Rome to the west, and then you had the Parthians to the east. If you want to go further back, the Parthians were one of the four empires that came out of the collapse of Alexander the Great's empire in Constantinople. So when his empire fell, it divided into four parts, four generals, each took a part. And the Parthian empire is to the east and is centered in Mesopotamia in Babylon, basically where modern-day Iraq is. And so Israel is right in the middle. And throughout the decades leading up to Jesus coming to the earth, there's a back and forth, a vacillating of control between Rome and the Parthians for control over Israel. This is what's going on. It's a highly tense state of conflict. And our first main character that we meet today is Herod the Great. Herod the Great. So, so let, let's meet Herod. He came from a, a political family, and his father actually preceded him as the overseer of Judea, the region of Israel. His father ruled that before he did. Herod actually gained political influence by befriending Mark Anthony of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra fame. He became good buddies with him. Mark Anthony leveraged his influence in Rome and got Herod appointed uh, king of Judea. And this is your first fill-in. Rome actually gave Herod the Great the title King of the Jews. King of the Jews. And there may not have been a tougher political assignment at the time than ruling over Israel. You were right in the middle of the conflict. And the back and forth with the Parthians meant that there were years when Herod the Great ruled Judea from Rome. Because the Parthians actually pushed them back, took control again. Herod would retreat to Rome. He'd keep his title as ruler and uh, basically king of the Jews. But he couldn't actually be there because the Parthians had grabbed control back. So they go back and forth, back and forth by this. Now, now add into this mix the fact that the Jews who are in Israel don't want to be ruled by anybody. They're ferociously nationalistic. They don't like being occupied by anybody. And so this is what Herod is given to rule over. They were liable to revolt at any minute. So sleep tight tonight because the Parthians might invade you or there might be a massive revolution from the own people, from the own people of the region. This is what Herod has to deal with. He was paranoid, as you can see. But as you begin to look at the context, you realize that Herod was paranoid with pretty good reason. His paranoia was justified. Now add to the mix, though, that Herod is a little over four feet tall and has an intense case of little man syndrome. So take that and put it in a region that's rife for paranoia 
That's a really, really bad combination. We would say it's simply a recipe for tyranny because the truth is the only way you can keep control over a region that explosive is to rule with an iron fist. There is no other way to do it. And that's what Herod does. He's a tyrant. But as we get closer to the birth of Christ, the Romans and the might of Rome push back the Parthians and seize firm control of the region of Israel for multiple decades. It could still change at any given second, but Herod has some time to work with. And the first thing he does is he builds Masada and about 12 incredible fortresses. I encourage you, if you want to go home today, Google Masada and go look at pictures of it. It's the most amazing fortress you've ever seen in your life, built on the side of an unbelievable, unclimbable cliff so that you could only attack from one small direction. It's incredibly easy to defend. So he builds Masada and these 12 other essentially safe houses. And the idea is that if everything goes south, wherever he is in the region, he's going to be close to one of his fortresses so he can run there, hide out, and defend himself till Rome comes and brings reinforcements and bails him out. That's the first thing he does. But Herod also did something very interesting. He actually built the entire Temple Mount area, most of it that's still standing there, and he built the second temple. The temple that Solomon built was destroyed around 587 B.C. to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar II. Herod rebuilds the temple, and he makes it even more splendorous than it was under Solomon. And this gets him a lot of favor with the Jews. I mean, that's, that's a good way to sort of earn their good graces, rebuild the temple. Yeah, that'll, yep, okay, that'll work. So he does that, and he's a brilliant, brilliant tactician when it comes to pleasing Rome and pleasing the Jews at the same time. He's very smart, and he knows how to play both sides at the same time. He built Caesarea, the pools near Bethlehem, and he built an entire water system for Jerusalem. And many of his building projects are still standing today in and around Jerusalem. So his first 24 years of stable rule are successful by anyone's standards. He created jobs for the working class, all these incredible building projects. But he was also a tyrant who simply eliminated all challengers. He was paranoid, so if he saw two people talking in a corner, he might immediately decide in his mind, they must be scheming to overthrow me. He murdered two of his brothers-in-law. He murdered two of his own sons. And he murdered Miriam, his favorite wife. And then later on, he missed Miriam because she was his favorite wife, so he built a statue in her honor. I don't know what you put on that plaque. Gone too soon because I killed her. I don't really know what you do with that, but I hope you're getting the picture. He's a scary guy. He's a scary guy. He could fly off the handle at any point, and when he flew off the handle... Heads rolled. That's who Herod was. There was a saying at the time that went, it is safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. That's how the saying went. And hardly a day went by in Herod's regime without an execution. The political climate at the time most closely resembled Stalin's Russia during the 30s. There were spies everywhere. People were not allowed to gather en masse in public for public demonstrations. His final nine years were less glorious and and full of problems. People speculate he began to lose his mind, which is why he did things like decide one day, you know what, I'm going to put the the symbol of Rome, the golden eagle, on top of one of the gates into the temple. Seems like a good idea. It doesn't go over so well, and the tide sort of turns against him. He rapidly loses popularity. He dies dishonorably and is succeeded by his son Archelaus. 
But five days before his death, this is the kind of classy guy he is, Herod realized, you know what? I'm kind of a jerk. People don't like me. They're probably not going to mourn when I die. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Arrest several hundred citizens at random. Take him into the theater. Have the soldiers there. I'm going to die any day now. As soon as I die, I want you to kill them all so that there'll be a proper atmosphere of mourning in the country on the day that I die. Nice guy, right? Fortunately, that never goes down because when he dies, everyone who's supposed to kill the people says, well, why would we do it now? He's dead. All right, everybody goes home. That's sort of what happens. And that's, that's Herod in a rare moment of clear, clear thinking. So now that we're acquainted with this charming individual, let's jump into our study. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. And it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. If you have your own Bible, you're going to want to underline king of the Jews. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? It's going to be important for our study today. So, so who are these wise men? Are they, are they anything like the Christmas cards? Are they anything like the songs that we sing? Well, well not really. They were, they were from Babylon. They were from Mesopotamia in the Parthian Empire. And as many of you know, the phrase wise men is most accurately translated as magi. And the position of magi was actually a dual role. It's where the term magistrate actually comes from. They were priests and they were government administrators. They had a dual role in the Babylonian government and the court of the king. Had a religious function. And you can put this on your outline. The Babylonian magi were a hereditary priesthood. You had to come from a specific family line in the Medes. Just as the Israelites had the Levites as their priestly tribe... The Medes, a specific family line in the Medes were the priestly lineage of the Magian religion and the Babylonian court. And so while they knew a lot about astronomy and astrology, their primary skill and function, first and foremost, was actually the interpretation of dreams. That was their primary function, even beyond astronomy. And, and tradition has gone as far as to give the wise men names, but there, there's no historical foundation for that. That's sort of an Eastern Orthodox church tradition. There's nothing really to that. But we get to this very interesting question, and the question is, how did the Magi know to watch the sky for this supernatural phenomenon? And secondly, how did they know to correlate the sighting of this star with the birth of the King of the Jews? They're in Babylon. They are months away, travel-wise. How did they know that this star heralded the arrival of the king of the Jews? This is where it gets interesting. I I believe it had a lot to do with a specific man who lived in Babylon 500 years earlier. And that man was Daniel. And if you read the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, you'll find in chapters 4 and 5, Daniel being appointed as the chief of the Magi in Babylon. He's made chief of the Magi. That's the role that he's given in the court of the king. Now remember, what kind of priesthood is the Magi in Babylon? It's a hereditary priesthood. So it doesn't go over well when the king makes Daniel, a Jew, a foreigner, an import chief of the Magi. That jealousy, that conflict is actually what triggers the entire lion's den situation. 
under King Darius when Daniel is there. But that's a story for another day that we'll have to come back to. So there's a tradition, a a verbal tradition, that Daniel, while he was in Babylon, actually formed a, a secret cabal with other magi that he trusted and shared with them a prophecy concerning the appearing of a star. And he told them this is going to be related to the coming of the Messiah. Now, now this isn't in Scripture, so I can't tell you that this is biblical, but it's very interesting to me because one way or another, the Magi knew that that would be appearing in the skies, and they knew what it meant 500 years later. Now, nobody ever really did more to increase the reputation of the Magi than Daniel. Under Daniel's leadership, their importance increased exponentially in the court of the king. So all the Magi who followed Daniel in Babylon would have followed his teachings, would have read his prophecies, would have been very familiar with everything that Daniel had done during his time in Babylon. In chapter 7 in the book of Daniel, Daniel writes that one would come called the Ancient of Days to rule and reign upon the earth and he would have everlasting dominion. In fact, in Daniel 7, Daniel gives the exact date prophetically to the day that Jesus Christ will ride into Jerusalem as king, which we call Palm Sunday. I was sharing this with my wife, and she's like, well, you've got to break it down. You've got to explain it. And I said, well, it's like a 15-minute thing. We're not studying Daniel. So here's what I did. I put on your outline a link online to an article which walks you through step-by-step step how Daniel 7 predicts to the day, Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides in. But Daniel's an incredible book. He's an incredible, mighty prophet of God. And because of Daniel's presence in Babylon 500 years earlier, the Magi, 500 years later, know to watch the skies and they know what it means. It's incredible to me how God orchestrates all of that across the centuries. And as a little side note, here's something really interesting. The first question that appears in the New Testament is, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? It's the first question that appears in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the first question, that's not rhetorical, that's an actual question, is God talking to Adam after Adam and Eve have sinned. They're hiding in the garden. They're ashamed of their sin. And the first question that appears in the Old Testament is God saying, where are you? Where are you? And I find it fascinating that in the Old Testament, you have man hiding in the shame of his sin. God says, where are you? And the answer is, I'm here, full of sin, ashamed, lost. And the New Testament opens with the question, where is the king of the Jews? Where is the answer to the problem of sin? That's how the Old Testament opens. It's how the New Testament opens. Just something really interesting and one of the reasons that I love the Bible so much. The first question deals with the first Adam. The second question deals with the second Adam, which is what Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. And there's a whole other layer of significance to the Magi and their function. In Babylon, the Magi's duties included absolute choice and election of the king. So when the king died, he wasn't simply replaced by his son, the next in line. The magi would commune. I guess they were, they were like the papal enclave before the papal enclave. So they would get together and they would discuss and they would appoint the next king. So the magi are literally king makers. They're king makers. And here we find them, the king makers, coming not to get something from Jesus but coming to acknowledge him as king. 
nor were they coming because of what Jesus had done for them. For at this point, Jesus had done nothing for them. They came simply to worship him as king. And I often have to stop myself in my walk with Christ and remind myself of one critical truth when it comes to worship. Do you realize that if Jesus had never died for our sins, he would be no less worthy of our worship than he is right now. He deserves our worship first and foremost, not for what he's done for us, but because of who he is. He is God. He is the Almighty. He is the King of Kings. He is the first and the last. He has preeminence, not because we acknowledge it, but because it is a fact. It is a fact. If he does nothing, if we respond this way or that, it doesn't change the truth that he is God. Why is God worthy of our worship? Because he is God. But in his grace and kindness, he's done everything for us. But I need to remember that because when I come to worship God, it's so easy to say, I need to find a reason. What's my reason going to be today? When a good starting point is, he's God. Why don't we start with acknowledging that and take it from there? That's a good reason to begin our worship rather than saying, what has he done for me lately? Um, um, um. Let's just start with the fact he's God and acknowledge that as a starting point for worship. Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Why is God worthy? Because he's the center of everything. We're not even in that verse anywhere. Just as he, he made everything, he did everything, he owns everything, he's the center of everything. That's why he's worthy. So let's talk about the star. A couple of interesting things. The Greek word that, sh- that we see as east in our Bibles can also be translated as rose or rising. So an alternate translation might be we saw his star when it rose. And that translation makes a lot more sense because if they're coming from Babylon, which is east of Jerusalem, and they see a star in the east and they follow it, they're going in the complete opposite direction of Jerusalem. So it's much more likely that what's actually written in the original text is that they saw his star rising and they follow it. And we can also tell from the text that the star is not really a star because it's not behaving like a star. It it shines brightly at night, but it moves. It moves. That's a really big hint that this isn't a normal star. It actually moves. It's a supernatural phenomenon. So what is it? Well, it's most likely what Scripture calls the Shekinah. That's right, if you grew up Pentecostal, we've all been saying it wrong. It's not Shekinah, it's pronounced Shekinah. And what the Shekinah is, is the visible manifestation of the glory of God. It usually appears in the form of a flame or fire. The Shekinah is what appears to Moses in the burning bush. The Shekinah is the pillar of fire that leads the Israelites through the wilderness in their flight out of Egypt at night. It is the cloud that they follow by day. It is the flame that appears on the heads of everyone gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's the Shekinah. This is the glory of God appearing, and they're following it. And the Magi are also Gentiles, which is interesting. They're Gentiles. They would have been considered unclean by the Jews, but God reveals himself to them and we know that there's all kinds of layers as there always are in scripture to the significance of the magi they were they were king makers they're related to daniel but i think there's another reason that god reveals himself to them 
And the truth is, it's simply because they were looking. They were looking. They were searching for truth. They were following it. They were pursuing it. And I I can't tell you today, the sad truth is, there's an incredibly small number of people, especially in our city, who are genuinely searching for the truth. And how do I know? I, I always know because when you ask them, well, what's your view on God or spirituality? Their view on God is a quote that they saw on 2020 or an interview with someone or a YouTube clip. And there's been, there's been no research into exploring this fully, exploring that, looking at the counter argument. When someone's searching for God, they're really searching, they're really looking, they're doing exploration. And this is who the Magi are. They're searching so intensely for the truth that they ride for months into hostile enemy territory because there's a supernatural phenomenon that's been foretold from 500 years earlier. They're looking, and God finds them because they're looking. It's a huge, huge principle. Let's continue in verse 3. It says, when Herod heard this, so, so get the picture. They're riding around Jerusalem. They don't go straight to Herod's court. They pull into the city. They're riding around the city saying, anybody know where the king of the Jews is? Anybody know? King of the Jews? King of the Jews? You, king of the Jews? This is what they're doing. They've had no interaction with Herod yet. Verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, so he hears this is going on in his city, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now we miss this. Their question is intentionally insulting to Herod because what is Herod's title? King of the Jews. The palace is the center of the city. You're not going to miss it. And you got these guys from a foreign power riding around your city saying, anybody know where the king of the Jews is at? It's a very, very brazen, provocative act to do in a very tense political environment. Historical context tells us that There's pretty much no way there were only three magi, but they were probably also traveling with a military escort. Why? Because these are important people carrying valuable items on a journey that spans months into foreign, hostile, enemy territory. They're magi, but they are wise. You would be really foolish to be like, hey, buddy, let's um, let's just go into foreign enemy territory, carry some valuables, see what happens. So they're there with a military escort. So you have to get the picture that an unannounced diplomatic envoy is arriving from enemy territory, riding through the streets, armed men. Pretty much their version of the special forces are rolling with these guys through the streets, asking a provocative question, where is the king of the Jews? Everyone who sees this is honestly terrified because they're all thinking, what's going on? What's going on? Are we about to go to war? Are these guys here to tell us that the Parthians are coming to kill you all? Are they here to give us an ultimatum? Are they here to negotiate our terms of surrender? What's going on? Because when these guys show up, it's never a good thing. It's never a good thing. And so this is what's going on. And, And this is why I believe Herod doesn't simply say, I'll kill them. Because he doesn't want to spark war. He doesn't want to set it off. So Herod is is in his palace frantically racking his brain thinking, what's the right play here? What's the right play? I've got a whole bunch of things going on there. Uh, Talking about a king of the Jews, but I'm the king of the Jews. Are they here to mess with me? Are they here to put a finger in my chest metaphorically? What's going on? So Jesus hasn't even been on the earth two years yet. He's just starting to speak. And the presence of Jesus is generating massive geopolitical conflict. 
massive conflict simply by his presence. This stands in stark contrast with our idea of magic baby Jesus who brings peace, love, and happiness everywhere he goes, right? He can barely talk yet, and he's got empires almost at war because Jesus is there. You see, the presence of Jesus always pulls back the curtain on the spiritual world. The presence of Jesus always pulls back the curtain on the spiritual world. And there is a war going on in the spiritual world. When Jesus is present, his glory and his power are revealed. But the darkness of Satan is also revealed by the presence of the light. The presence of Jesus divides the light from the darkness, and that's what we're seeing take place here. Do you remember Simeon's prophecy last week when Simeon is prophesying over Jesus and he tells Mary, listen, this baby is also going to expose the motives of the hearts of many people. Jesus isn't two yet, and it's already happening. Who Herod is is being exposed, and as we're going to see in the rest of our story, even more people are going to be exposed. The depths of their heart are going to be exposed by the presence of Jesus. And in Scripture, over and over again, this is the side of Jesus that popular culture doesn't like to acknowledge. Over and over again in Scripture, we see God in the Old Testament telling Israel, make a choice, blessing or curses. Make your choice. Drawing a line in the sand. Are you for me or are you against me? Are you my people or are you not? When Jesus shows up, he's full of grace and he's full of truth and he's drawing lines in the sand again and again saying, are you with me or are you not? You gotta leave everything if you're gonna be with me. Make your choice. And in the end, Jesus is crucified because he drew a line in the sand and he said, I'm God. If you believe that, come over to my side. If not, you're on the other side. That's what they ultimately crucified Jesus for, was that claim, that line in the sand. Herod wasn't actually a Jew. Herod was an Edomite. And this is just an interesting side story. I put the references on your outline. You can read it at home if you want. But the Edomites are actually the descendants of Esau. So Jacob and Esau, the famous brothers who begin warring in their mother's womb. I can't even imagine how uncomfortable that would be. Continue their battle throughout history. And here we find the descendants of that war. We find Herod, a son of Esau, scheming to kill Jesus, a son of Jacob, centuries and millennia later. If you're wondering, the Edomites simply vanished from history over the next couple of centuries, fulfilling a prophecy in Ezekiel, which foretold that God would destroy the Edomites completely. Let's continue in verse 4. It says, And when he, Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So here's the deal. Herod is an Edomite. He comes from Rome. He's a Roman. But what he has, demonstrating his political savvy, he has the priests, the Sanhedrin, in his back pocket. They have an arrangement. And he has scribes. Scribes are essentially professional biblical scholars. And Herod is so savvy politically that he has these guys on speed dial so he can call them and say, listen, if I do this, what's the fallout going to be among the Jews? If I do this, or what, what's something that I could do to earn some favor with the Jews, just to calm them down? They're a little restless. Tell me something. And they would say, well, we love to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, so you could do this. All right, call a bunch of trumpeters. So he's a smart, smart guy. So he calls the scribes, the professional biblical scholars, and he says, king of the Jews. The word is these guys are looking for a king of the Jews that's just been born. 
What's in the scriptures? Tell me what's up. This is what he's saying. And so the scribes sort of go to work. They start racking their way through the scriptures. Verse 5, it says, So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler, you're going to want to underline that, who will shepherd my people Israel. And you're going to want to underline shepherd. And they're referencing Micah 5, chapter 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, I'm sorry. And it's very interesting because there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that we only realized were prophecies when they were fulfilled. So you look back and you go, oh oh my goodness, that was a prophecy about this. When Jesus arrived, he fulfilled in his life and death over 300 Old Testament prophecies. And we began to see there's a pattern here. There's, There's Old Testament prophecies about things that are yet to happen. And only in the last couple of centuries have we really started catching up and getting ahead to the point where now we are looking at prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet and realizing these things are going to take place. here's what I mean. There's an aspect of prophecy where you might receive a prophetic word from somebody that says, I want you to know God's spoken to me and he's told me to share a word with you that you are going to be the manager of a large company. Now, what can you do with that prophecy? You, You can't really do anything. It doesn't mean that you should go out and start applying for management jobs right now, even though you have no experience and magically you'll get one. What you do with a prophecy like that is you thank the person, you write it down somewhere in your prayer journal. And then what generally happens if it's from the Lord, it comes to pass and years later you're looking through your prayer journal and you go, oh my goodness, 27 years ago somebody gave me this prophecy. And in that moment you realize God has been guiding your entire life. And that's what you do with a prophecy like that. And so this is sort of what's taking place with these prophecies. The prophetic word verifies that the hand of God was guiding all of these events. But I believe that this was the case when it came to the perception at the time towards the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. Here's what I mean by that. I don't believe that the general understanding among the Jews was that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And why why do I say that? Because if they all believed that, Bethlehem would have been a religious hub of the day. They would have had a bunch of priests there. They would have had a bunch of people there awaiting the arrival of the Messiah, especially in a time when they're occupied by a foreign power. But Bethlehem has nothing. It's nondescript. It's nothing. And so what we can deduce from that is that most people didn't really put any stock in the idea that the Messiah was going to be born there. Bethlehem was better known for being the birthplace of King David. But there's nothing to indicate that they gave it any type of significance. So the scribes go and they sort of look through it and they go, well, uh, I mean, there's like this one prophecy, you know, in like Micah that talks about Bethlehem. And that's really all all that I've got. But I had you underline the words ruler and shepherd in verse six. And I, I just want you to note the contrast. The Bible talks about Jesus when he comes to rule on the earth during the thousand years to come in the future when he sets up his kingdom. It says he'll rule with a rod of iron. So it talks about him being the strong leader, the strong, mighty, firm leader. And then you also have in verse 6, who shepherds his people. And it's a picture of tenderness and of compassion. And you have these two identities coming together in the person of Jesus Christ. That he's the king of kings, he's the ruler, but he's also the shepherd. 
who is tender enough to take care of his little sheep. Jesus is quite simply the shepherd king. That's what verse 6 is telling us. So Herod knows that, that anyone claiming to be the Messiah is generally bad news. He's not really worried that this is like a super baby. He's not going to sleep at night thinking that he's going to wake up and there's going to be two-year-old Jesus at the foot of his bed coming to kill him. What he is concerned about is people rallying around this baby as a figurehead for a political movement. So he's worried that if word gets out, everyone is going to flock to Bethlehem. You know, it's going to become a shrine, the house that they're staying in. People are going to camp out there. Everyone's going to go crazy and everyone's going to say, you know, Messiah Meshua is here to free his people. Now is our time. God is with us. Let's go kill the Romans. He doesn't want them to rally around this idea. And so he calls the wise men in secret to come to his temple. He calls them in secret. Bethlehem means house of bread. That is where the bread of life, Jesus, was born. And and if you go to Bethlehem today, it's still an absolutely unspecial place. It's in Palestinian territory today. But if you go there, there's the Church of the Nativity, which is supposed to be where he's born. And there's a conflict between three different uh, streams of Christianity, a couple of Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, three different groups, and they all run this church together in a hilarious, dysfunctional relationship that would probably make for a great sitcom. There's stories that come out of it, like when a light bulb goes out in the Church of the Nativity, there's like arguing for months about which group is responsible to change the light bulb. And the result of that is you go to the Church of the Nativity, and it's kind of a dump. Like there's the most gaudy like Christmas decorations like hanging from the ceiling of the church, the kind that have, you know, been in your attic for 10 years. And the the place is really a dump. There's nothing special about it. But it is one of the most well-known cities in the world for one reason. Jesus was there. Jesus was there. You know, that that sounds a lot like you and me because no matter how many self-help books we read or how many mantras we chant about our own personal worth and value. We, we know deep down that compared to God, we're really nothing special at all. There's no compelling reason for him to extend kindness to us. And yet scripture says that Jesus makes us great. He makes us great. Not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. Because of whose we are. We belong to Jesus. That's why Paul says, man, I'll I'll boast in my weakness. And if I boast, I'm going to boast in God. What's the very best thing about me? What's the very best thing about you? We belong to Jesus. That's the best thing about you and me. That's it. So let's look deeper here for a minute. Because Bethlehem is, is south of Jerusalem. And I don't know if anybody remembers from last week how far south Bethlehem is. It's only about five miles. It's five miles. It's a short trip even by their standards, even by foot. So why doesn't Herod make the trip? I mean, think about it. He's being confronted with the possibility that a supernatural God child has been born in his backyard. Aren't you even a little curious? Aren't you even a little curious? But Herod is so focused on building his own empire, too focused on building his own kingdom to welcome the kingdom of God into his life. All he says is, you you know what? I, I have a plan for my life, 
And even if this is God, I'm not really looking for that right now. I got a plan for my life and I'm not looking for that plan to be interrupted. You don't ever want to find yourself in the same place that Herod was where God shows up right in front of you in your life and your response is, this is not a good time. I just need this to be over. What what do I need to do to make you go away? This is Herod's response. And if you know someone who is in that place, I want to encourage you to pray for them. That is the only thing that will work. Pray that God gives them eyes to see and ears to hear, that he softens their heart. Because when a person's in that place, only the power of the Holy Spirit intersecting their life can change them. Only the power of God can change them. And if that's you, then stop and change today. Change today. But who else is around? Who else is on the scene? We have, we have the Magi. We have Herod in the court. And we have a third group. And this third group is the scribes. It's the scribes. And, and this is where it gets really interesting and challenging to us. We need to understand these guys are biblical scholars of the highest order. Most likely they have the entire Old Testament memorized. All of it. These guys are the best of the best. All they do all day is search the scriptures for new angles, new understandings, new cross-references, prophecies, possible fulfillments. These guys know their Bibles. They know their Bibles. But they don't go to Bethlehem. They don't go. So what in the world makes them so hard-hearted that they're able to speak out of their mouths. The Bible says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Job done. Well, how, how You just told him that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, and that doesn't move you? How, what is, how does that happen? This is what I believe is happening. When you, when you study God's word, when you read it for yourself, you find that God's word demands a response. It demands a response. God did not write the Bible for our entertainment. God did not write the Bible so that we could have deep quotes to share on Facebook. God did not write the Bible so that we could feel smart. He wrote the Bible so that we could be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why he gave us the Bible so that we could know him and be made like him, be sanctified through his word. And these guys are soaking themselves in God's word. But after a while, they begin to study it and not apply it. Then they go back and they study it some more, and they don't apply it. They study it some more, and they don't apply it. And this pattern emerges. This is where I start to get scared for myself. This is the great danger to any church like ours that studies scripture and teaches scripture. It is so easy to fall into the pattern of adding to our head knowledge and never being changed on a heart level. And you want to know the warning signs that you're close to that? And I speak from personal experience. The warning signs are, that's a great word for someone else. That's a great word. You know who needs to hear this? This person. Or, wow, that's interesting. 
It's interesting. I can't wait to share it. And you realize in all your mental processing of what you're learning about God's word, nowhere in there are you asking yourself the question, what is this saying to me? What is God asking of me? What do I need to change in my life? You just take it in, you soak it up, and you do nothing with it. And over time, you get in this pattern. You develop a hard, hard heart. And that's where the scribes are, full of the word of God, able to converse with anybody about the deep things of the word, and completely unchanged by the power of God's word. Completely unchanged. This is what it says in the first chapter of James. It's one of my favorite portions in scripture. James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. This one. James is saying, listen, when you hear the word of God and don't apply it, you're like a man who looks in the mirror and you see what God is calling you to be, what he wants to do, and you walk away and you forget everything. Forget everything. It says the opposite of that is looking in the mirror, looking into the law of liberty, the law of freedom. It's the gospel, he says. But he who looks into the gospel, looks into the freedom of the gospel and lives in the freedom of the gospel and applies the gospel to their lives. That person is blessed. That person is blessed. Scripture explicitly tells us you're not blessed if you just hear it. You're blessed if you do it. If you hear it and you do it. Even the beginning of the book of Revelation, the promise is not blessed is he who hears the words of the prophecy. It says blessed is he who hears and heeds the words of the prophecy and heeds them, applies them to their life. The blessing is in doing, not just in knowing. And I like to sum it up this way for my own life because it convicts me. This is the truth. We believe what we do. We believe what we do. And so if you take everything you think you believe and look at what you're actually doing, if you're like me, you'll find that most of the time there's a great discrepancy between what I think I believe and what I do. You can apply this to any area of life. If, you, if we don't take what we eat seriously, it's because whether we like it or not, on some level, we don't believe it's going to harm us. We don't. We just don't. That's not going to happen to me. If we don't put our seatbelt on when we drive our car, it's because on some level we believe it's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to me. And when we don't trust God in an area of our lives, it's because deep down we don't really believe him. We don't really believe him. And so the challenge that I want to put out as we head towards our conclusion this morning is where are the discrepancies between what you say you believe and what you do so that you might be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Let's say this in closing. We have three responses to Jesus in today's study. We have Herod who was so busy dealing with his own kingdom that he didn't want to deal with Jesus. 
just didn't want to deal with it. It's not a good time. I've got a lot going on. I, I just don't want to deal with God in my life right now. We have the scribes who knew the scriptures inside and out, but failed to believe them. They failed to believe them. They had the head knowledge, but none of the real faith. And then we have the Magi who came to worship and acknowledged Jesus as king. They acknowledged him as king. And so the question today is quite simply, which one are you? Are you Herod? Just not a good time right now. I just need, maybe it's an important question, but not right now. Are you the scribes who know it all, but it hasn't dripped down into your life yet? Are you the magi who said he is God? How can I respond any other way? other than worship? How can I respond any other way than falling down before him and acknowledging him as my king? How can I respond any other way? Will you close your eyes and bow your heads and we're going to take a moment to just pray. And I want to ask that, that you would just search your own heart right now, that you would ask that question in your own heart. Which, which of the three am I? Which of the three am I? Where are the areas in my life where the truth is I'm a hearer of the word, but I'm not a doer of the word? Holy Spirit, we ask right now, in Jesus' name, that you would speak with clarity to each of us, God. We don't want to miss out. We don't want to miss out on the glory of God working in our lives because we're too busy or because we simply add it to our head knowledge, but don't believe it. And we never experience you. We never see you with our own eyes. God, we want to be like the Magi who just said, he's, he's the king. He's the king. I'm here to worship. God, speak to us right now by the power of your spirit and reveal to us where we need to change. Bring those things to mind, God. Uh, I just pray right now for anyone in the room who's like the man who spoke with Jesus. And Jesus challenged his faith and he, he said that he believed. And then he said, help my unbelief. He's a man who believed but recognized he still had a ways to go. God, for those of us in the room who need to say, God, help my unbelief. Would you help our unbelief?